Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are finally at the very last chapter of David's story in the book of 2 Samuel. We've been walking through uh, the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel for over a year now, and we've got one more sermon next week as Chris wraps it up for us, but this is the last chapter, the very last words um, in 2 Samuel of David's story. And it's a little bit of an unexpected ending, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, I don't know if you can think about a story that you like, maybe a book or a movie that has an unexpected ending. I would give you some examples, but a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, I used an illustration from a certain TV show that might not have really been that appropriate to go on and recommend, which I did after I used the illustrations. I'm going to stay away from the examples this week, let you think of your own, but Think about that example of a show, movie, book, something that has an unexpected ending to it. And chances are, if you can think of that ending, it wasn't an accident. That ending was purposeful. It was in order to wrap up the story a certain way. There was probably a really good reason the author had to end the story so unexpectedly. And I think that's the same thing that we find here in 2 Samuel this morning. The reason that this ending is so odd is because by the time we get to chapter 24, it seems like David's story should already be over. So chapter 22, which is what Chris is going to preach on next week, is David's song of deliverance, which would be a good way to end David's story. Then chapter 23, which is what Jeff preached from last week, is David's last words, which would also be a really good way to end David's story. But then we get to chapter 24, and we've just jumped right back into the narrative. Chapter 24 starts with the word again, and then it just tells this story. We see this same pattern that we keep seeing week after week of David sins, David repents, God forgives David. And I don't think that this ending is just tagged on. I don't think the author forgot this story and decided, well, I need to write it in here at the ending. I think that he ended the story this way because he wanted to draw us into something. There was a purpose for ending the story this way. And so I think it's worth studying this morning. As we dig into the story, we're going to walk through it in kind of three parts to the story. We'll look at David's sin, David's repentance, and then David's atonement. So we'll start with David's sin. Read with me starting uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. 
So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. So the first thing that we see in these verses, it starts out right away saying, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And we don't know what was, going place for God, what, was go, what was taking place for God to get angry. These verses really do jump out at us at some level because we don't have any of the context. But what we do know from all of the Old Testament is that God doesn't get angry for no reason. God's anger is always in response to Israel's disobedience. So if you're reading along in 2 Samuel, you get to David's song in chapter 22, you get David's last words in chapter 23, and you're starting to think, well, finally, everyone lived happily ever after. The story's ending how I want it to. And then verse, chapter 24, verse 1, Israel's blown it again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again, their sin and disobedience in the land. And we're getting sick and tired of this same story week after week, aren't we? But this is why 2 Samuel 24 really is the perfect ending to this book. It touches on all the major themes that we've seen throughout the book one final time and invites us in one last time to identify our lives with David's life. We've said this over and over again in our study of David's life, but the mess that we find in this book is the mess that we find in our own lives as well, isn't it? There's these, this pattern of good times followed by bad times, followed by more good times, followed by more bad times. We could put a, a Christian spin on it and say we've got times where we feel near to God and then seasons where God feels distant, followed by times where we feel near to God and then, of course, more times where God feels distant. And so even though the fact that we have to go back here and look at this, this pattern of sin again and the brokenness that we find in this chapter, again, that's frustrating and tiresome, but it's also honest, because this is real life. The Bible doesn't paint this false picture of God's people as happy all the time or as perfect people who have it all together. The good news of the Bible in Jesus that we'll celebrate in a couple weeks is only good news if we first recognize the mess of our lives and of our world. Well, then what happens next? It says that the Lord incited David against Israel, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So God plans to use David as an instrument of judgment against the people through David's desire to have this census. So David tells Joab, his commander, to take the census, and Joab pushes back and asks, are you sure you want to do this, David? But David decides to go through with it anyway, and then we see in verse 10 that this was a sinful decision. There's a couple of, of confusing things in this section that need some explanation. The first one is that the narrator tells us that it was God who incited David to take this census, 
So then why is David ultimately held responsible for his actions? And this story really is a good illustration for us of this tension that we have in the Christian life between God's sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility on the other. Now, human beings have wrestled with this question of free will since the beginning of time, so we, we won't even scratch the surface right now. In fact, this question is just as big a tension in an atheistic worldview, because if all we are is material matter and our decisions are just a product of how our brains fired at any given time, then how could we be responsible for those actions as well? This question is really one of the biggest philosophical questions of the universe, but here's two things this story teaches us and the rest of the Bible confirms for us. God is sovereign over all things and human beings are responsible for their actions. So we believe that God is sovereign over everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen in creation. But we also believe that we as human beings are responsible for our actions before God, before others. Andrew Fuller, who is a, was a pastor, says it like this, he says, a fleshly mind may ask, how can these things be? How can divine predestination accord with human agency and accountableness? But a truly humble Christian finding both in his Bible will believe both, though he may be unable to fully understand their consistency. And he will find in the one a motive to depend entirely upon God, and in the other a caution against slothfulness and presumptuous neglect of duty. So Fuller's saying that we might not be able to fully understand it, but we find both God's sovereignty and human responsibility taught in the Bible, so we should accept them. And he also says that these doctrines work together to help us rely on God, but also work hard to obey God and to love others. So even though this is a big philosophical question we might not be able to understand, we see how it practically works out in our lives and our discipleship. The second part of this story that needs a little bit more explanation is why taking this census was even a sinful thing for David to do. And the story doesn't tell us exactly, but most commentators agree that the reason taking this census was sinful was because David's, David's motives for doing so were selfish. Really, the only reason that David would need to know how many people were in the land of Israel was if he wanted to know how big of an army was available to him. And what this reveals is that David was trusting in the size of his army instead of the strength of his God for any future rebellions and battles that would come his way. Another reason that this was probably selfish was because the size of the nation was seen as a sign of God's favor. So if the population was large in Israel, God must be pleased with them. And if the population was small, God must be judging them. So David was probably trying to take God's temperature here, so to speak, and find out is God still on my side? Is God still pleased with me? And most likely both of these things are at play here and what they show us is that instead of simply trusting the God who's delivered David time and time again, as we've seen, David wants to make sure he's got this strong army and he wants to make sure that God is still happy with him. And so once again, we see David fall into this pattern of falling away from God and sinning against him. And even though we've seen this pattern over and over again in 2 Samuel, I think it's worth a moment here to dig into the specifics of David's sin this time. So how could we turn this around on ourselves and ask, what are we trusting in instead of God? 
I'm sure none of us are trusting in raising a literal army to protect us, but we usually trust in the armies of our jobs, our health, our families, our possessions. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, just like it wasn't bad for David to have this army available to him. The problem is where our trust lies. Are we trusting in our jobs to provide financially for our families, or are we trusting in the Lord? Are we trusting in exercise and healthy living for us to live a long life, or are we trusting in the Lord? When we trust in these things that we can see and that we have some control over, we tend to just kind of forget about God altogether, don't we? We think about God when we come to church or maybe on holidays or when we need help, but in general, we live our lives on our own terms, apart from God, no different than the rest of the world. And really, the control that we think we have is just an illusion anyway, isn't it? This past year has been difficult, but hopefully one of the positives is that it's taught us that we all have a lot less control than we think we have. No job is secure enough to give you 100% confidence that you'll always have more than enough than you'll need financially. And if your confidence, if your trust is in that job, then you will always be anxious and worried. Maybe you're someone who kind of the opposite is true. So you look at these worldly armies and instead of put it, placing your trust there and putting your confidence there, you actually despair. You don't have a good job. You don't have a 401k. You're not in good health. Your house is falling apart. But there's good news here for you as well because just like the people who put their confidence in those things, your confidence doesn't have to be in the lack of those things. If you're in Christ, the Lord is by your side. David trusting in his army reminds me of a story in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Israel is greatly outnumbered in battle and this soldier comes up to Elisha, the famous prophet, and says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah responds to him and says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And that doesn't make any sense on the surface. Everyone can see that Israel's army is outnumbered by this enemy army. Well, and here's what happens next. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this soldier was afraid in the size of Israel's army when in reality they had an army of angels on their side. In the same way, David is trusting in this army of men when the God of angel armies is fighting for him. And the same principle is true for us as well. Whether we're prone to build up our worldly armies and trust in them instead of God or to look at our worldly armies and despair, we are as believers, should be trusting in the God of angel armies instead. Well, the second aspect of David's sin here is, is, like I said, he seeks to validate his life and his standing with God based on his performance. So the, sign, uh, the size of Israel's population was a sign of God's favor. So as David takes this census, he's trying to find out, is God showing me favor? Is God happy with me? Are these rebellions that we keep seeing over? Is peace finally going to endure in my kingdom? But here's the problem with that. 
God had made a covenant with David that Israel would prosper and that David's kingdom would have no end. So David already had the answer that he was looking for. God's favor was still on him, but not because of anything he was doing, but because God had chosen David and brought him into relationship with himself. And again, it's not hard to apply this to our own lives because we too so often look for validation everywhere else but with God. To work and family, again, are two obvious examples. It's easy for us to define ourselves and measure the success of our lives by how good of a job we have or by how perfect our family is. It's even easy for us as Christians to see these things as a sign of God's favor. So if we have a good job, we have a good family, then we must be doing something right. God must be pleased with us. But just like David, it's our, God has made a covenant with us that isn't based on our performance. God has called us into relationship with himself, not because of anything we've done or we continue to do, but because it was his desire to do so. In our covenant with God, God's promised not to leave us or forsake us. He's promised to make us more and more like his son, Jesus. He's promised us an eternal future with him without sin or suffering. And none of those promises are dependent upon our success in work life, family life, or any other area of life. Just like David, we have no need to seek validation through these things because God has already validated us. I don't know if you've ever gone to a restaurant in downtown Oklahoma City or, or maybe in a larger city where um, you pay for parking, but then the place that you're eating at will validate your parking. So you basically get free parking. So how that works is you actually do have to pay to park, then you have to go find the person who validates the parking, and then you're able to get your money back and get your free parking. But it's a bit of a process. You have to work at it in order to get this free parking. But our validation with God is not like that. It would be like driving up to the parking attendant and getting that parking ticket that's already validated. You don't have to pay and then work hard and earn that validation. When God calls us into a saving relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, the ticket is already stamped, validated. You are worthy of God's presence if you're in Christ. You are worthy of God's love. You're worthy of deep, meaningful life with him here on earth and joyful eternal life with him in heaven. David forgot his covenant with God, and we can so easily do the same. Well, let's get back to the story. We'll pick it back up and look at David's repentance, starting again in verse 10. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So as we've seen time and time again over these last 15 chapters or so of 2 Samuel, 
David sins, but David also quickly and decisively repents from his sin. There's no getting around the fact that David has committed sin after sin in this book, including some major sins like adultery and murder. Yet what we also see is that David always turns from his sin after acknowledging it. This is the first time that I've studied uh, David's life from beginning to end like this. It might be the same for you as well. And we've seen all the usual highlights in David's life. We've seen him slay Goliath with his slingshot. We've seen him play the harp for Saul. We've seen his admirable relationship with his best friend, Jonathan. And of course, we've seen his major sin with Bathsheba as well. But what stood out to me most from our study is just how broken and sinful David really is. And that's not to minimize David's greatness. He is truly a remarkable human being. He's Israel's greatest king. But you usually don't hear about all of these, this mess that we've been dealing with the last couple of months in our study. And so as I was reflecting this week, I couldn't help but ask myself, is this really the man after God's own heart? Is David really a picture of someone authentically following God? And the answer is yes, he is. Faithful followers of Jesus are not those who have everything together and never mess up. They're those who quickly and decisively repent and turn back to God when they do. I'm not saying that personal holiness isn't important because it is, but, the main, but what the whole story of David's life from beginning to end teaches us is that being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean you never fail. It means when you fail, you turn and repent of your sin. Saul and David both commit the same sins in this story, but David repents and Saul doesn't. This is the sign of a transformed heart. Not outward performance, but our willingness to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior and turn back to that Savior each and every time we fall. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, the very first one said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And here's what Tim Keller said about Luther's words. On the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never be making much progress. But of course, that wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Repentance, not performance, is the best sign of a life transformed by God's grace. So let me just ask you, do you repent when you sin? Do you confess your sin and ask God for forgiveness? Do you apologize to those you've wounded and ask them for forgiveness as well? If you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian but aren't that serious about your faith, let me just say something to you for a minute. The world tends to characterize Christians as those who do have it all together and who think that we're better than everyone else because of the things that we do and the things that we don't do. And there are certainly many Christians that act that way, and that is a tragedy. But that's not authentic Christianity. The Christianity of the Bible, what 2 Samuel teaches us, what Jesus teaches us, is that none of us have it all together. None of us are good enough to measure up to God. And I don't become a Christian and follow Jesus because I'm good, 
but because he's called me and welcomed me despite my many failures. That is authentic Christianity, and that is what we hold out to you this morning. All right, let's see how David's story ends in 2 Samuel. Pick it back up in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Aaronah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aaronah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aaronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aaronah said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaronah gives to the king. And Aaronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aaronah, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So here we see the punishment for Israel's disobedience and David's sin in taking this census is that 70,000 people die. And even in the punishment, we see God's mercy as he stops the plague as it's about to reach Jerusalem. And then David sees the tragedy stop. He cries out to God. He buys the threshing floor, offers the sacrifice, and God accepts David's offering and ends the plague prematurely. And that's how Samuel ends. That's how David's story ends in this book. Not with his swan song in chapter 22, not with his exalting last words in chapter 23, but with 70,000 people dying and David making an offering of atonement to God. That's a pretty unexpected ending. But now we're really getting at the heart of why I think this ending's intentional. This ending serves at least three purposes here. It reinforces this theme of atonement that we've seen time and time again. It links David with God's promises elsewhere in the Old Testament. And it also looks forward to the coming Messiah. So first, this ending reinforces the theme of atonement. All throughout First and Second Samuel, we've seen that sin is serious and requires atonement, and that atonement involves the shedding of blood. So Saul rejects God's anointed one, David. Saul dies. David commits adultery and murder, and David's son dies. Absalom rebels against David. Absalom dies. 
Two weeks ago, we saw that in order to atone for Saul's sin that was many, many years in the past, David has to hang seven Israelite men up on a mountain to atone for that sin. And now, in response to Israel's disobedience and David's census, we get the bloodiest and most harsh of all, 70,000 people die, and the plague is only averted when David makes atonement in the form of this offering. As Jeff said a couple of weeks ago, atonement is a bloody, messy business. Sin is serious, and it requires atonement. In that first song we sang today, uh, Death of Death, it starts out with two lines that say, we can't come to the Father without the Son. We can't turn his wrath without shed blood. And that's such a countercultural thing to believe and to sing. The message that most of the world is telling us about God is that if God exists, as long as you're a good person, he will let you into heaven, into his presence. But the Bible teaches something very different. It teaches that no one is welcomed in by God without atonement because God is holy and we are sinners and something has to bridge that gap. The message of Christianity really is, on the one hand, the worst news in the world and on the other hand, the best news in the world. It's the worst news ever because we preach that God requires perfection, none of us are perfect, and to know God, bloody atonement is necessary. But then it's the best news in the world because the message is that God's provided the atonement himself in Jesus Christ. So no, you don't get to heaven by being a good person or by doing a lot of good things, but it's actually much simpler and freeing than that. You trust and receive that Jesus died to atone for your sins. This ending also links David to the rest of the Old Testament and anchors his place in the story of the Bible. And the reason that I say that is because this site that David purchases here, this threshing floor, ends up becoming the place where Solomon, David's son, builds the temple years later. And not only that, but we learn that this site is on Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham, back in Genesis, offered up his son Isaac as an offering to God. So this isn't an accidental site here. David fits into the middle of Israel's history as making an offering in the same place where Abraham offered Isaac and where thousands and thousands of Israelites would offer in the temple. Abraham over here is willing to offer Isaac, but God steps in and provides the ram. The temple was the place where the Israelites would come and make offering, and it was God's visible representation of his presence with his people. It was a picture of his forgiveness. And then there's David right here, not insignificantly, making this offering on behalf of the people. David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the one surrounded by all of his mighty men and warriors, asks God in this section to punish him instead of the people. And he takes it upon himself as the king, not as a priest, to make atonement for the sins of the nation. This isn't normal behavior for an Israelite king or really any king. How many presidents or CEOs or any significant leaders really do you know who would be willing to leave their place of authority and power and come down and suffer or potentially suffer on behalf of those that they're leading? Yet this is what David does. David lays aside his power and glory as God's anointed ruler over Israel to stand in between God's wrath and the sin of the people. 
If you were an Israelite reading this story, then you would be shocked by this behavior from David. You would probably even be appalled and disgusted that your king would stoop this low, unlike the kings of the other nations around them. But of course, that's the whole point of this story, isn't it? This ending to First and Second Samuel is not meant to exalt David. If it were, then the book would have ended after David's exalting last words in chapter 23. This ending is meant to point forward and to exalt the one who is to come. It's meant to exalt the one who's going to leave his place of power and authority and not just make atonement for one period of disobedience for the nation of Israel, but for every sin, past, present, and future, ever committed and, and committed in the future for every human being who has lived, is living, and will live. And that king, of course, is Jesus. So as we wrap up this morning, let me just ask you simply, is Jesus your king? Have you recognized your need for atonement and trusted that only Jesus can bring you back into relationship with God? Only Jesus can atone for your sin. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as your king, we would love to talk with you more about what that means this morning. For those of us who have made Jesus our king, as we look ahead to Easter in just a couple of weeks, let's give thanks to God that our sins are atoned for and forgiven in Jesus. Let's trust in the God of angel armies whose power raised Jesus from the dead instead of trusting in our worldly armies. And, let, and when we sin, let's quickly and decisively and wholeheartedly turn back to him in repentance. Let me pray for us. Father, we just humbly come before you confessing that we are not worthy of your presence and your love. But we thank you that you have made a way for us to know you in your son, Jesus. Just thank you for that this morning. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins. You would give us confidence in you. Give us joy and peace in your name. Help us to celebrate resurrection of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus. May it all be for his name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.